Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Partner Over Observer, where we study the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he tells Peter that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For more information and resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Good morning. Y'all live today? Hallelujah. Y'all stayed up too late watching the Lakers last night? Or that was just me? That was me. (laughs) Today we're going to finish our series on Jesus' words, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. It's kind of where we'll camp today. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13 is where you want to flip. So, Father, as always, uh, we just ask this morning that your presence would settle as we look at your word. Lord, we just confess again that we believe your scriptures to be fully inspired and errant. We believe that we're dealing with the breath of God. Paul wrote that all scripture is God breathed. And so, Lord, this morning, as we examine it, we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would minister, that you would be the the, the senior minister in the room. You would be the one speaking to hearts and bringing deliverance and healing and challenging our posture and encouraging us to serve and to love and to reflect Jesus better. Holy Spirit, we need you in this time. Hide me behind the cross. Anoint these words. We honor you. We honor you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Amen, amen. Well, I just finished a book that I told Haley, I, I must have just started reading it when I was younger, but I, I don't think I finished it, but I just read it again. Um, but a book on a, on, a, on a British missionary that I like named Jackie Pollinger. Um, Jackie Pollinger was 22 when she finished a degree in music. She played the oboe. Me too. Um also not true. After she encountered the Lord in dramatic fashion, she decided that she wanted to be a missionary. She actually decided at a young age that she wanted to be a missionary. The problem was that no missions organization would take her on as a single 22-year-old female with a music degree specializing in the oboe. They didn't find that particularly helpful. Um, And so she went to see a pastor who seemed reckless to most And the pastor told her that if the Spirit of God was calling her to be a foreign missionary, she better not deny his call. From her perspective, every door was closed. But the pastor told her that if he was her, he would take all the money she had, get on a boat, and get off the boat when God tells her to. And now her parents, the parents of this 22-year-old recent college grad, were very excited about that piece of advice. um, Because that's exactly what she did. She got on a boat with something like $10. And when the boat got to Hong Kong, she felt like God was telling her to get off. And so with no reservations, no plans, and enough cash to live for about three or four days, she gets off the boat, luckily sliding past customs. Um, And so she tells this story, the story of her life in a book called Chasing the Dragon, which I would recommend you read. That Write that all. You guys who write, there's a couple people who like order books on Amazon while I'm talking. Um, Go ahead and order that one. Um, Chasing the Dragon. 
Her heart broke for a region in Hong Kong, which was called the Walled City. It was filled with prostitutes, heroin dens, and it was primarily governed by local gangs. Um, it had no proper sewage, and so every house, that there would be like eight or nine people living in a single room with no sewage, and so they had a bucket. And so in the morning, everyone would just throw their buckets in the streets. And so you can imagine the smell, the, um, the, all of the sanitary issues that come with that. Young girls were already serving as, or working as prostitutes um, to support the habits of their family members or their pimp, for lack of better words, while the boys rarely made it through primary school. And almost all of them joined local gangs for protection, um, to have some sense of identity, local identity, and for income. And so Jackie Pollinger, a single 22-year-old British girl with a music degree specializing in the oboe, um, finds herself ministering to this region, um, which is totally devastated by sin. She started a youth club, opened a little room. She rented a little room. She put ping pong tables in there and other games, and she'd invite all the teens to come to the youth club. And um, one of the things about the Walled City is that no one, almost no one had a normal routine of sleep and life. Like people just stayed up all night long. You just slept when you slept. It just was what it was. And so Jackie um, would open this youth room like all night long and would sit. The kids would play ping pong. She tried to teach them the Bible. They wouldn't listen. She just hung out through the night. She'd share the gospel. She'd try to teach. She'd make them sing songs. Many of them, she'd pray. Many of them get up, walk out while she prayed, and then they'd come back for the ping pong. She had a little success for some years. During the charismatic renewal, she had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and had received a prayer language. Um, she had prayed in tongues, but she had quit. She wasn't really praying in tongues these days, but she befriended a missionary couple who asked her to commit herself to praying in tongues for 15 minutes a day. They said, even if you don't feel anything, they said, it's not about what you feel. They said, for 15 minutes a day, we want you to pray in tongues and just believe that the Holy Spirit's using that gift, that the Holy Spirit's going to act as you step out in faith. And so she did. She began to pray in tongues for 15 minutes a day. And after six months or so, she noticed that um, where before she was sharing the gospel with everyone and no one was responding, she said, all of a sudden there was like she would share the gospel. She'd walk down the street and bump into the right addict, if that makes sense, the one that was just done. And she said she began to share the gospel, and an addict, a completely strung out heroin addict, would just say, yes, I, I need Jesus. That's exactly what I need. And she, she said that as she began to, and it, as she began to pray in the Spirit, but, but it wasn't all just about tongues. It was about trying to honor the person of the Holy Spirit in her ministry. She, would, she was in tune with the Spirit, and then she would start to just, just, as she ministered, it was like the person was ready. And these addicts began to respond to her gospel presentation. They were mostly young, heroin-addicted gangsters who would give their life to Jesus because they were strung out and tired. And so what she would do is she would, she would pray a salvation prayer with them, and then she would encourage them. Uh, she would say, let's pray for the, for the Holy Spirit to come upon your life. And, and she would pray with them until they got baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they, they, would, they would commit themselves to go through withdrawal. But she was, as they would withdraw, she would make them pray in tongues, and she would pray in tongues over them. And what would happen is these, these heroin addicts who have been strung out for years would begin to pray in tongues for like two or three minutes, and then they'd fall asleep. And she said they'd wake up 24, 36 hours later, and they'd be okay. There'd be no withdrawal. And so the entire withdrawal thing, they just slept through. 
And what happened is the other addicts started to learn that if you came to Jesus, there was this crazy oboe playing lady who could help you get free. And it wasn't long before there were hundreds of heroin addicts, prostitutes who had come to Jesus because they knew that they could get set free. So she wakes up one morning early in the morning. I think she said it was three or four in the morning and her phone was ringing and the person on the other end of the line told her that her youth club had been broken into and vandalized and they just totally tore the, the place up. I remember everyone uses the bathroom in a bucket and some people had taken those buckets and slung it all over her youth room, spread it all over the walls. And she was she had seen some fruit in her ministry at this point, but she was totally devastated. She felt like all of her life work had been spent on. Also remember that Jackie Pollinger was not supported by a missionary organization. So that ping pong table she bought with her own money. She was teaching school during the day. And the, the money to rent the room was not coming from a church in America. It was coming from her pocket because she taught oboe during the day. Um, and so all the things that they broke, they destroyed, they were, they were paid for with her own dollar. And so she was frustrated. She said she just wept and wept as she scrubbed feces off of the walls of the room that she was trying to use to minister to these young people. And she almost quit. She said, I was about ready to quit. But but through her prayers and her crying, she decided that she was going to keep going. And so she cleaned that room up and she opened it up Friday night like nothing ever happened. And when she opened it up, there was a young gang member who showed up. She later learned that this young gang member was ordered by the highest gangster in the region to protect her and to protect the club and to never let anything like that happen again. She, she tried to send this young gangster away. She said, I don't need your protection. Jesus is my protection. And the gangster said, well, my orders are to stay, so I'm staying. Um, it wasn't long before he gave his life to Jesus and got clean himself. And when he did, Jackie asked him to give her a meeting with this leading gangster of the region. She wanted to know why he was protecting her and she also wanted to share the gospel and so reluctantly he did she she did get a meeting with him and she found herself sitting down to eat with the reigning gangster in her region and all the boys spoke of him with great like like he was this mystical figure you know like they were all mesmerized by him and so she finds herself sitting at the table with him and they're they're talking and and um she asked him why why are you sending someone to protect me and he responded with something like this he said that there are always rich white people who would come to our city and they, they feed us. They try to tell us about Jesus and they always want to take our picture so that they can take it back home and show it to their churches. He said, but none of them would ever dare live with us or stay with us. And he said, usually when a rich white missionary couple comes with their food and their pictures, he said, I usually would ask some of the lower uh, level gangsters to beat them up. And he said, we beat them up one time. They never come back again. Um, he said that they 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 weren't. They, they didn't really love these people. They just wanted to take a quick picture and maybe make themselves feel better by feeding some poor, broken people like us. He went on to say, Jackie, but you're different. He said, you've been here for four years now and you haven't left. Even after they smeared feces all over your room, you haven't quit. And he said, it's my responsibility to care for these young gangsters. I'm the head, and it's my responsibility to make sure that they're taken care of. And he said, you're the only other person I know of that cares for them like I care for them. Of course, his care for them was twisted. But he, she, he said, when, when, they, when they're in trouble, you show up. When they're sick, you're, you show up. When they find themselves hungry and need food, you show up. He said, you love them as much as I love them. You're the only other person. And he told her that um, 
he knew that some of the addicts, some of the guys who were really strung out had gotten clean and they gotten sober and they had turned their lives around. And he said he liked that and he had hoped that she could continue to work with the addicts. Jackie responded, you understand that when my addicts get set free, you're no longer their master, but Jesus is now their master. And so I'm, I'm not going to just get people clean so that you can still lord over them. Jesus is going to lord over them. He thought for a while. <laughs> then he said this, you can have the addicts. They're not good fighters. They don't show up on time. They steal the drugs they're supposed to sell. They're more of a hassle than a help. If you can get them clean, your Jesus can have them. Jackie made that deal gladly. And so she spent her life with a house full of addicts who had gotten clean. Had multiple, eventually had multiple other homes functioning. At one point, she'll begin to work with the prostitutes, get them clean, get them healed, set free. But she said that it wasn't pretty and that it wasn't clean. Not all stayed clean from drugs. Some slipped up again. She said there were times where the addict they were trying to help would rob them and run away. There were times where, where their house would get get totally robbed blind and she said that that it just it just wasn't pretty working with addicts and prostitutes even after they give their lives to Jesus is not glamorous she said she said that some of the young boys who would get free she would tell them you can't fight with your gang anymore you've got to Jesus has to be your master but they didn't get it and so she find herself cleaning up some young boys busted up head because he got smashed in with the baseball bat and she said that that was ministry trying to work with these people But she was frustrated because she said particularly Americans would come over in the summer for two or three weeks and expect to see the whole city changed overnight. They wanted to see this great missionary that they had heard about. And she felt that they were painted a picture and a story of her life and her ministry that was very glamorous. She said in reality it was very messy. She said in America, and these, these particular Americans she was dealing with, they were very preoccupied with finding their own personal spiritual gifts. They were not preoccupied with giving their lives away for the lost and hurting. She said my, that her ministry was not glamorous, that the addicts and the prostitutes were messy. They often robbed and threatened, and these Americans in particular would leave after a couple of weeks frustrated and say that there's no real fruit to this ministry. She said it was, she was hard-pressed to get someone to stay for longer than just a few months. She said that God was building his church in that region amongst drug addicts, prostitutes, in one of the poorest cities in the world with no sanitation, absolutely ravaged, disgusting place. God was moving. The Holy Spirit was setting people free. But it wasn't glamorous, and the Americans didn't like it didn't always feel victorious. It didn't feel like radical Christianity where you see the city flipped over in a night. It didn't feel like mass revival. Although it was revival, hundreds and hundreds of addicts getting set free. My God, what else could you want? It just didn't all happen in one day and it didn't all happen in a two-week span. She said that if you were going to stay there and minister, you couldn't be driven by a desire for quick results and a powerful story to bring home and quick pictures to, to share. She said you had to be driven by a desire with, to really share the gospel and to really love a broken and destitute people. Today we'll look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16 where he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
we like that promise. The gates of hell will not prevail against it because we feel like we're we're conquerors in Jesus name. And we are more than conquerors, but we're, 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 we're not this kind of victorious, perfectly conquering people who walk into a city overnight and see the entire thing flipped over. That's not the promise that Jesus gives here. Jackie says that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail. But many, especially in the West, have this false mindset that everything's going to flip overnight and that they're never going to have a bad day. The first time they have hardship, they go back home. The gates of hell won't prevail. It feels like victory. And in many ways, it is victory. And in some ways, it isn't victory. Let me read it to you today and we'll discuss the full implication of what Jesus is saying. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, we'll finish through verse 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the line we'll focus on today. This morning, I'd like to start with the interpretation that I think is least likely to be accurate, but is most common. The quickest interpretation of this text is to assume that the phrase gates of hell means the defensive structure, a gate. This is how the teaching goes. A gate is a defensive structure for a city. And so the church is on the offense and we're kicking down the gates of hell as we we ravage her territory. It's taught to mean that the church is on the offense, shaken at her gates, pushing back, always pushing forward, that the gates won't be able to stand. Now, I like, I, I like that interpretation, for obviously, because I like the idea that we're on the offense and that the church should be willing to take risks, be on her toes, that we're not this weak, frail thing, but that God is actually using. I, I, I like that, but there's a lot that I don't like about this as well. The problem with the interpretation from a linguistic standpoint is that the phrase gates of hell is never used in the scripture to describe the defensive structure of the territory of hell. The phrase gates of hell is a common phrase in scripture. It has a history of usage with a particular meaning that you can't ignore. Does that make sense? When a phrase has a particular usage with a particular definition, you don't get to redefine 2,000 years later what that particular phrase with its particular usage means. Does that make sense? The basic principles of scriptural interpretation. And so, um, that's first, that's not the way that that phrase is used throughout scripture. And, and as we move forward, I'll explain more how it is used. The problem with buying into this interpretation and the doctrinal implications that go along with it is the very prominent truth that Christians has, have often been beaten, bruised, slaughtered for their faith. It's taught to mean that we will always win. We will always conquer. We're supposed to be kicking butt and taking names, man. It's gone as far as men in the past saying that, that if someone was martyred for their, faith, for their faith, it's because they lacked faith. That martyrs are actually people who don't have real faith to conquer. And that is a spit in the face of the gospel um, in the presentation of Scripture. Revelation says that the, martyr will, the martyrs will be the most honored in heaven. And the problem is when you think of the life of Paul, you don't imagine a great conqueror. At least I don't. 
his words in the close of Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, that I love, I've read to you a million times by now, say this, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Those words remind us that Paul is saying, leave me alone. My body has the same scars as the scars of Jesus. The way that Jesus' back was whipped, that's the way my back was whipped. Leave me alone. If we teach new believers that their lives will be nothing but beating down hell's gates, kicking butts, and taking names, we're setting them up to be rather disillusioned when they find themselves like Paul, falsely accused and beaten for it. And if I can be honest for a moment, my Christian life, and I think your Christian life, doesn't always feel like kicking butt and taking names. Sometimes it feels like hell breathing down my neck. And I have moments of great confidence where you would think I'm very spiritual, where I stand up and I rebuke the enemy and I say, in Jesus' name, you're going to sit down. In Jesus' name, this attack is not going to prosper in my life. I have those moments of great spiritual authority and confidence. But the most often prayer I pray is, God, help Jesus, help. Jesus, help. There are times where I stand in confidence and authority and say, in Jesus' name, this attack's going to sit down. And there are times with, with the, the psalmist where I find myself hiding in the shadow of his wings. Jesus, help has been a profoundly powerful prayer in my life. And I don't for one iota, one even slither of a moment, accept the the lie that I'm an inferior Christian because I've prayed it. There's a time and a place for confident spiritual warfare, no doubt. But there's a time and a place to remember that Paul said, in my weakness, I am strong. In my crumbling, in my humility, in my crying out, Abba, Father, I am profoundly strong. I do not believe from a doctrinal perspective that following Jesus wholeheartedly secures my fate as a winner. I am not Donald Trump. I do not believe that all of my life is winning. Or Charles, what was that? Anyway, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) You guys remember that meme, the winning thing that we all did? No, the apostles were all martyred outside of John the Beloved who was left to rot on Patmos. And John the Beloved was not on the Isle of Patmos to shake down Hell's Gates and to spearhead a great missionary movement. He was exiled, left to die, most likely by the Emperor Domitian. If you think that the Christian life will be nothing but kicking butt and taking names and that you'll never have to endure hardship, persecution, loss for the sake of the gospel, you will quit way too soon. I mentioned last week the parable of the sower where Jesus says that some seeds of the gospel that are sown are choked out by greed This week, I want you to look at Matthew 13, verse 19 through 21 with me, where Jesus says this. For what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus says that there are some who have no root in themselves and tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word. Because of your faith, tribulation, tribulation and persecution arise and they immediately fall away. The promise of Scripture is not that you will always feel victorious. The promise of Scripture is that tribulation and persecution will arise and you'll have to have some root in you to endure. Now, this teaching is yoked with what's called dominion theology, kingdom now theology, um, I agree with a lot of it and I disagree with a lot of it. And I think it's really important that we think through it carefully for just a few minutes. 
Dominion theology or kingdom now theology teaches that it's our job, our responsibility to take back hell's territory. We are bringing the kingdom of God to the city. I believe that. I believe we're going to see the sick healed. I believe we're going to see souls saved. I believe all of that. I pray that. I believe that in Jesus' name. But my job is not to take back this city from hell. My job is to submit to the leading and the person of the Holy Spirit who takes back this city from hell as he wills in his timing exactly how he wants to. My job is to submit to the king, to the person of the Holy Spirit. Hell will not prevail, but hell does not prevail because the Holy Ghost is in the room, because the Holy Spirit is in us. Dominion theology begins, I'm going fast, but it's because I want to get through it. Dominion theology has its roots in the late 40s with a man named William Branham. The teaching starts with the commission of God to Adam and Eve in the garden when he tells them to take dominion of the earth in Genesis chapter 128. Dominion theology teaches that Adam and Eve were supposed to make Eden spread throughout the entire creation. And that, 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 that God created Eden, which was this heavenly place, and that Adam and Eve were supposed to spread it throughout creation. I'm okay so far. I don't find that explicitly stated in the scriptures that God made eating like this and they were supposed to spread it. But, but I'm okay. I don't, I don't have a bone to pick with that. Where the teaching gets muddy is it claims that Jesus' mission was to empower us to get back to taking dominion of the earth. Now, I read a pretty popular book at the age, I don't know, 20, from a prominent leader who you'd know if I mentioned his name, a prominent leader in the body who taught that the church will conquer the earth and that, that, that the earth will um, totally fall to the gospel and then Jesus will return. He said that entire cities would begin to get saved. Entire regions would come into the kingdom. All the sick would be healed. We'll empty every hospital. All the depressed will be delivered. We'll bring the full joy of the Holy Spirit. All the unbelievers, they'll have no choice but surrender to the goodness of Jesus that we put on display. We're going to have worldwide revival as the church shakes down the gates of hell. And at first that sounds exhilarating. And I was wound up. Let's do it, man. Let's take the mountain. All seven of them. That's a theological joke. If you got it, you got it. The problem is that the Bible teaches that the end times will be marked by the coming of an antichrist who will deceive the nations. The Bible teaches, according to Second Thessalonians, that there will be a great falling away when many who seem to be Christians will fall away from their faith. The Bible doesn't teach that Jesus returns after the church wins and makes the earth fully like heaven. It teaches what's called the rapture. I'm okay with having a discussion about the timing of the rapture, but dominion theology and kingdom now theology teaches that there will be no need for a rapture. God doesn't have to take us out of anything because we're just going to win. The whole earth is just going to be fully delivered. Paul does not think that the end times will be marked by the church winning and Jesus just stepping back into Eden, that the whole earth will be Eden. Paul tells Timothy, understand this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul tells Timothy, understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Everyone, I want you to say times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovings of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Understand this, that in the last days there will be great times of difficulty. The Antichrist will be accepted and celebrated. 
I want you to know that I don't believe for one moment that we were going to rid the earth of all of her darkness. I believe we're going to see souls saved. I believe we're going to see lives delivered. I believe we're going to see the sick healed. I also believe that we may be persecuted. I also believe that we will be falsely accused. I also believe that we'll face demonic pushback. I do not believe that we are going to win this entire region to the gospel and there will never be another who will deny Jesus. I don't believe that because it's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? I understand that this kind of theology is rampant in charismatic circles. And we love it because it sounds passionate and it sounds glamorous and it sounds victorious. But it's not what the Bible teaches. I want you to know that I believe that the church is weak and powerless and worthless without her Christ. I want you to know that I believe the church is empty without the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that following Jesus takes grit, perseverance, a willingness to walk through dark seasons with trust that Jesus is the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. The church is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And the world will be set right when Jesus, her Messiah, sets it right. Kingdom Now theology, Dominion theology flourishes in charismatic circles because we believe that God still heals the sick. We believe that demons are cast out of oppressed people in Jesus' name. And you can see how charismatics get sucked into that idea that hell will just be conquered if we do more. We probably do need to do more. But hell will not be conquered until Jesus steps his foot on the Mount of Olives. We need to understand, I'm sorry, I'm, this is the other thing, that charismatics don't always love sound doctrine theology. And I'm thankful that our church does. And so give me a minute to do sound Bible for a second. We need to understand the tension of being created in God's image and still just being a reflection of God's image. We're created in God's image and that we are all valuable, innately valuable. Every person has destiny in their bones. Every person, even even the baby in the womb, even the 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 the, the person with mental illness or Down syndrome, they are all innately valuable. They're all beautiful and wonderful and they have worth. They have incredible. Each individual has incredible worth. The other side of the image of God is that you are created in the image of God. You're not God. Be humble. Find some humility for God's sake. You're not him. You're not the Messiah. You, you reflect him. You look like him. You get the honor of, 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 of looking like Jesus and people seeing you and going, oh, that's godly. You get that great honor and privilege, but you are not Messiah. And if you carry a Messiah concept, a, a complex, you will find yourself disoriented. God does not expect us to fix everything or to kill ourselves trying to shake hell out of every corner and crevice. And God does not expect us to lay our heads down on our pillows tonight and say, if I just did more, then my city would fall to the gospel of Jesus. If I just believed harder, then all of the sick would be healed. Then hell would crumble. If I just did more, that's not what God expects of you. No, that's his work. We're sheep, children, bride. He's the caretaker, the conqueror, the king, and the shepherd. He's the healer. He's the deliverer. It's his ministry. And he... He moves as he see fits. It's our job just to submit to his leading. I don't carry the responsibility to see the entire earth change because I'm not the shepherd or the healer or the Messiah. And I love so much of this interpretation because you know me. I love to like get out there, follow the spirit, do something. I love it. 
But on the flip side, I'm worried that we allow our people to get disoriented and frustrated and we say things to each other. If you're not healed, it's because you don't have faith. We say things to each other like, if, if you haven't seen a hundred people saved, then you're not really spiritual. And it's silly, man. The, the true spirituality, my God, let me get off my pedestal in a minute. Spirituality, according to the New Testament, is when we fall at the foot of the cross and say, I am worthless. You are beautiful. If one soul is saved through my life, it would be beautiful. It's your work. You don't have to use me. You choose to use me because you love me, but you don't have to. Real spirituality is, is meditating on the work of the cross, loving and savoring the person of the Holy Spirit, humbling myself before him. Hell is retreating. Hell will be conquered and by God's power through the Messiah and God's timing. We do have authority in the name of Jesus. We have the, the commission to pray in the name of Jesus. God does still heal the sick, emphatically still heals the sick. Emphatically, he still drives out demons in the name of Jesus. But you and I are not the solution to the world's problem because we are not the Messiah of the world. So first, gates of hell does not mean from a, um, from a literary or um, from a textual standpoint, that phrase gates of hell does not mean the defensive structure of hell that we bombard. Secondly, the doctrine that's taught from that is inconsistent with larger biblical doctrine. Um, the, the last days are marked with great trial and, and persecution and, and antichrist. And if we're going to bring the gospel in the last days, you're going to have to have some grit. Next, I'd like to talk about the interpretation that I think is um, more likely, the interpretation that I've been taught growing up um, and that I think is more consistent doctrinally. Um, this interpretation says that the gates of hell refer to the authority or the strategies of hell. Let me show you a few scriptures. Proverbs 31, 23. Um, this is the, the proverb of the, the woman, the virtuous woman. It talks about the virtuous woman's husband. It says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So we know that just from that text alone, that historically the gates were the place where the elders of the land sat. Second um, Samuel verse chapter 15, verse 2. This is that text where Absalom is trying to overthrow David, and so he's trying to win the people's heart. It says, Absalom used to rise early in the morning and, and stand beside the way of the gate. I want you to say way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. So Absalom went to the way of the gate because that's where they did, um, it talked about matters of justice. And so Absalom stood at the gate and tried to win people's hearts. Ruth chapter 4 talks about Boaz when he's going to redeem um, Naomi, Ruth and Naomi redeem um, the, you know, the Kinsman Redeemer story. And it says that um, Boaz went to the gate and he gathered the elders and, and the man who was the, had first rights to redeem. Do you remember this interaction? They did that at the gate because the gate, and historically, is not just a defensive structure. In Hebraic culture, the gate is a political space. It's a place where the elders of a region congregate to discuss matters of justice, legislation, and to strategize. This interpretation, which I think is more likely, is it teaches that hell is currently strategizing against the church, but all of her strategizing will fall flat. This would make the text like Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper. That will bring that this that would make this the gates of hell should not prevail against you to be much more similar to no weapon formed against you will prosper. 
The interpretation is more consistent textually and theologically. And the interpretation says that when all is said and done, I will look back over my life, the entire trajectory, and I will say, hell tried to get me here, and hell tried to get me here, and hell tried to tangle me up here, but God flipped it all around for his good. This interpretation says that hell is plotting and planning to assault the church, to assault my family. She is strategizing to bring us as a local body to a place of disunity, to ensnare us in bitterness. Hell is still working to tempt me to live selfish and to live in sin. But hell can have all the plans that she wants. Jesus says that her plans will not overcome his church. The reason I still face spiritual warfare is because hell is still trying to to plan and plot against me. The reason my prayer sometimes is God help is because it because it feels like hell is breathing down my neck because hell is breathing down my neck. But Jesus says in John 10 verse 27 through 28, this is some good old fashioned Protestant Reformation text that we don't talk about very often. John 10 verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. Then he says this. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If this interpretation is correct, which I lean more this way, this would be Jesus saying that hell will strategize against my church, but no one will snatch her from my hand. Lastly, as I've looked closer and read more on this phrase, I've come to the conclusion, with, because of scholarship, not because of my own brain, as I've read teachers, I've come to the conclusion that the phrase gates of hell may actually refer to death itself. The Greek literally is the gates of Sheol. Sheol is not the equivalent of the Greek Gehenna, which is always translated as hell. Sheol is the equivalent of Hades, which is understood as the place of the dead. Um, so at times, Sheol is used as a term simply to mean death. Um, one, of, one of the pastors, teachers that, that explains this really thoroughly, his name's Kevin DeYoung. Um, you can find him talking about this on the internet. Job thirty-eight seventeen says this. This is, this is God talking to Job. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, Job, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Now, when, when we translate the gates of death, that's that same phrase, the gates of Sheol, the gates of death. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17 through 18. This is Isaiah talking. Uh, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. In Hebraic poetry, this is called parallelism. I hate that word. Um, which, Which means that all throughout the Psalms you see this where where there are two phrases next to each other and they say the same thing, they just say it in different ways. So when, when Isaiah wrote, um, Sheol does not thank you, 
death does not praise you. That's parallelism. The two lines parallel. You could lay them over top of each other. So Sheol and death are parallels. And does not praise you and does not thank you are meant to parallel each other. Um, and so here Isaiah is, is, is using Sheol and death interchangeably. Psalm 139 verse 7 through 8. It says this, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Meaning if if I die, if I descend. Now, if this interpretation is actually what in Jesus intended by using the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Then what Jesus is actually saying is that death will not have her. I want you to consider the words of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. Jesus says to to, Jesus says this, um, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If this interpretation is correct, which I'm, I'm, I'm I very much am leaning that way, death the, the phrase gates of hell it paints this picture that, that death has her mouth open, you know, her teeth out and all of humanity is following in. And Jesus says that that those in, who belong to this church that I'm building, death will open her mouth, but she will not have her. Though they die, yet shall they live. He's building a congregation of people who will conquer death, who will not be held down by the grave. This interpretation leads us to the conclusion that although dirt will be thrown in our faces, we will on the final day get up from our graves. The scripture teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ so that the moment I die, I'm caught up into heaven. But the scripture also teaches that on the last day, when Jesus' feet do touch Mount, the Mount of Olives, that the, the dead will get out of the grave. So even my physical body will be resurrected. The scripture teaches that I will get a new body. It will be redeemed. And so, so yes, the moment I die, I'm caught up into heaven. But on the last day, even this chunk of flesh will be redeemed, renewed. I will step out of my grave. The grave can't have me, is what Jesus is saying. Now, that's quite a different interpretation than the one that says you'll always be victorious and you'll never have any trials. The one that says, no, dirt will be thrown in your face, but that's not the end. Jesus' enemies, all of hell herself, the entire demonic realm, watched that Jesus was brutally murdered, whipped, beaten, the crown of thorns jammed in his head. And they murdered him alongside thieves and murderers as if he was a guilty man. And hell thought, we finally got him. We'll murder him and he'll be done. Joseph of Arimathea gets the body of Jesus and takes it to a borrowed tomb where he wraps Jesus along with Nicodemus. And all of hell thinks Jesus is done. We couldn't stop him, so we killed him. And then he just got up. what Jesus is saying is that death will think she has us. But there's a coming day when I'm just getting up. The gates of death, the mouth, the open wide mouth of death that's sucking all of humanity will not have us. Sling dirt in our face and there's a day coming when we get up. Is the church victorious? Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. What do you mean by victorious is the question. 
So ponder these thoughts for some weeks now. I'm closing, Micah. If someone, one of y'all want to come play the piano and do something really good, do it good. Try to play it right. So I, I, I've prayed and the elders have prayed. We've talked with our leadership. We've all prayed. And we're, we're confident that God is building his church here. And it's not because we're incredibly powerful and wonderful. It's only because the Holy Spirit's at work. Okay. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we really feel like God is at work. The Spirit of God is building his church. Jesus is building a people with joy and confidence who will look death in the face and declare you've got nothing on me. Think about the fact that death without without Jesus is such a scary moment. Death is a moment when you you think what what on earth is going to happen to me? But death for the believer is the greatest testimony when you're laying in a hospital bed filled with joy because you're about to escape death and enter into life. Jesus is building a people like that, real confidence in the gospel. Again, Jesus is building his church And he really doesn't need us. Rather, he delights in using us. I don't want you to tell my mother-in-law this, okay? Everything I'm about to say, never tell my mother-in-law she's not in the room right now. She's here somewhere, but she's not in the room. I think she's working in the kids' ministry. But when I get off work, when I used to get off work, when we lived in Columbia, I would go home and I would get my oldest. She was maybe two or three. And I I would put her in my truck and try to give Haley a few minutes to herself because you all know how it is staying in the house with kids all day. And so I would put my oldest in the truck, and I would put her in my lap, and I'd let her drive my truck around the neighborhood. She liked to look for cats. Um, and so I'd put her in my lap let her drive. Don't tell my mother-in-law that. She's already got the plan to kill me if something happens to those kids. Um, if I'm ever murdered, I want you all to have her investigated first. Um, the, the, the thing was that I actually didn't need my two-year-old to drive the truck. I was perfectly capable of driving the truck. I held the steering wheel at the bottom. I did the gas and the brake. She couldn't see I was holding the steering wheel. I had to hold it because she always aimed at the mailboxes. And so when she aimed at the mailboxes, I braked and turned. I didn't need her to drive the truck. It made me happy to watch her try to drive the truck. It brought me joy to see her face light up. I wanted to spend time with her. God does not need you to drive. He does not need us to build his church It brings him joy to watch the excitement on our faces when we get to be a part of lives being redeemed. He doesn't need us to drive the truck. He just likes to let us sit in his lap and pretend like we're steering every now and then. And he's in control. But he, in his grace and in his kindness, is allowing us to participate Because he likes to look on our faces when we realize what's going on. He's building his church here, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. We've grown in this congregation, this body. We've grown in depth. We've grown in our discipleship. We've grown in our love for one another. And it's pleased Jesus also to grow us numerically. We have grown numerically because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. It's our prayer that God would continue to build the church both in depth 
It's our prayer that our worship goes deeper. It's our, our prayer that our altar ministry grows in power and anointing. It's our prayer that we grow in discipleship. But it's also our prayer that God continues to save souls for his glory. And so we do want to grow numerically, not because we want a bigger crowd and because we want to pat ourselves on the back and say, look how good of a job we did. But we, we want to grow numerically because we want the glory of God to reign in our city. And so we're not trying to build a crowd, but we are trying to build a church. Those are very distinct things. Um, and so we are growing numerically, and it's our prayer that God, in his grace and his kindness, is pleased to continue to use us to grow his church in this region. The problem with growing numerically is that at times it feels like we're running out of space, okay? We've known that this problem is coming. It's the right problem to have. When your kid grows out of their shoes, you don't get mad at them. That's, that's a good problem, right? You want your kid to keep growing out of the shoes. You guys understand what I'm saying? You It creates an issue. you got to go to the store and get new shoes. But it's much better than the issue of going to the doctor and saying, why in the world isn't this kid growing? Okay? It's the right issue to have. So we're growing out of our shoes. There are some weeks where we don't quite have enough parking. There are some of you guys who have been hit in the face by someone worshiping, like just smacks you. So so as, as... the elders, we, we put a balcony in and we tried, to, we tried to make a little more space with the balcony and that worked and there are people in the balcony and some weeks there's not any space left in the balcony. And so we're at that place where we've got to make another step and make some more space because we really still want God to use us to build his church. So we feel like the simplest way to make space for God to continue to move and um, again, some weeks not having parking or not having seats, the, the, the simplest way is to go to two services, okay? And so we're going to move. We want you to know that we're making plans to move to two services. We are not going to have uh, uh, early traditional service where everyone, we put the hymn books out and we all sing hymns, and then a late contemporary service where we get moving lights and everything, and we, we're, we're, we're not going to be really old in the morning and really young in the evening. We're not going to do that. We're just going to do the same thing twice, okay? We're going to be us two times, all right? Um, the, our, the, the pastor that we last served under, who pastored the church that we served with, um, the church at one point had to go to three services, um, a big church, and our pastor led it so gracefully. He's an incredible man of the Spirit, and he, and he, and he told us, and he said this, he said that there are going to be some weeks where you come into church and first service has just ended, and second service is getting ready to start, but there are still people in the altar receiving ministry. And he told the church, good, it's fine. Like, we're not going to rush altar ministry just because we have to start second service. He said, if they're still receiving ministry as worship starts for the second service, it's fine. It's, it's normal in a culture, in a community of spirit-filled people where we believe in ministry. It's normal to have ministry happening. And so that's the way we're going to operate. There may be weeks where you come to the second service and the, sec- the first service, there's still people getting altar ministry. Just come in, grab a seat, maybe lower your voice if it feels like you're interrupting, but it's, but it's fine. And there may be a week where you're really, you came to first service and you're really getting ministered to and second service is getting started and you're rolling and crying and weeping and we might just pull you to another room and let you continue to roll, cry, and weep in another the room. It's fine. Okay. We're not going to stop following the Holy Spirit to fit our perfectly tight schedule. We'll, we'll just let him, we'll just let him keep working. Does that make sense? We're, we're just going to let him keep working. It's, it's going to be okay. Um, and so we're, we're getting ready to, to make those, those changes. Um, 
March 29th is the first date we have on the calendar. It's two weeks before Easter because we want to have two practice weeks before Easter. We know we're going to need space in Easter. We also know that we ain't that good. And so we're going to need a practice week or two. Um, and so March 29th, two weeks before Easter, will be our first two services. Again, the exact same service twice. Um, the service times right now we're thinking are going to be 9 and 11. Um, the pros here are that we're not spending any money to build a building yet. There may be a day when we have to do that. We don't think we need to do that right away. The pros are that we potentially create enough space to do this twice. We potentially could reach twice as many people as we, as we currently have. Um, the, the con to this is that we're, we may need a little more help. With our ministries, our kids' ministry, our, we're gonna, um, Rick Dietrich's getting ready to start a parking lot ministry because we'd wanna be able to flip the parking lot quickly. Um, again, we're not, I, I feel like I have to keep saying this. We're not trying to build a crowd so that I feel successful or the elders feel successful or the, the team feels successful. We're, we're trying to build a church for the glory of God because we believe the gospel is intended to wreck people. We believe the gospel is intended to set people free. And so the only challenge that we have with two services, outside of the fact that it's change, which none of us like change. You don't like change. I don't like change. I like it probably a little bit better because I'm young and y'all think that's funny. Um, other than it being change, the main challenges we're going to have is that we, we may need more ministry partners, more ushers, greeters. Our kids ministry really needs some more help in asking God to move. We are setting ourselves up to be prepared for God to move. Does this make sense? And so we, we might need some more ministry partners. So today when you leave, there's going to be tables outside. And our teams that need help to go to two services are all going to be out there. And you're going to be able to talk with them, ask questions. Um, we do our best to not have anyone serve more than once a month who does not want to serve more than once a month. Mr. Jimmy is going to serve every week because he can't sit still, okay? It's who he is. Um, but our best case scenario, what we do for most people, is we ask you to serve once a month, and we were, we're going to ask that you serve one time a month. And so if you were going to work in the kids' ministry once a month, you may come to church once one time a month, you would come to church and maybe work kids' ministry for the 9 o'clock service, but then you would be able to come to service for the 11 o'clock service. This is, do you understand this benefit? So right now, there are people working with our kids who will not get to go to church today. With this switch, they will work with our kids in the morning and be able to go to church in the afternoon. And so some of you guys who aren't serving, um, and you would say, I would like to serve, I just don't want to miss church every week, you'll be able to just serve one time in the morning and then go to church at 11, or vice versa. Or you would um, go to church at 9 and serve at 11. It makes it really easy. One time a month, you would serve. Um, I want you to consider serving consider we call them ministry partners because paul referred to women and men as gospel partners um, i want to, i want you to consider being a gospel partner as we take a step towards continuing to reach this city but i also want you to not hear any manipulation in my tone i'm not trying to manipulate anybody into doing something that you don't want to do um, i know that some of us are in seasons where we need to be healed ourselves, where we're not quite in a place where we want to be be working all the time. We need to focus on ourselves. That's fine. I know that some of you are caretakers for someone who's ill or terminally ill, and for you to be here twice is hard. I know some of you work right after the service, and so you're running out of here. I, I know all. I know some of you got 18 kids like me, and it's hard. Um, 
families understand that kind of thing, and families pick up the slack for those who can't. Do you know what I mean? Um, my wife's very pregnant right now. She's very pregnant. Sometimes I got to tie that girl's shoes, okay? Because she can't tie. Just kidding. I don't tie her shoes. But you do know what I mean. There are things around the house that she can't do right now. And I step up and I cover her because that's what families do. So if you are, if you're like, I'm healthy, I could serve. I'm just not. Um, I want to encourage you to stop by and, and think about jumping in, helping us serve, helping us reach this community. We, we do think that God's moving. We do think that the Holy Spirit's moving. And we want to, in faith, posture ourselves um, to get our hands dirty. Somebody say, I want to get my hands dirty. Half of you just lied, but that's okay. Um, the other half that weren't lying, I, w- I want to encourage you to stop by and see how you could be a part in helping us continue to minister to this city. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.